That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to the sixth episode of Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bonnell. We're here at Historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now known as Magnuson Park in Seattle. It's Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM from Magnuson Park. Um, Cascade of History, as you know, is the only live radio show all about Northwest history. Um, we love your questions and ideas for topics or shows. Send me email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Um, we have some great in-studio live guests. You guys are live, right? You guys are... Yeah, okay. No, don't, don't, don't answer. Um, we've got live guests. we got Lee Corbin and Sean Murphy, who are friends of mine, some military aviation historians, and know lots of great old stories about lots of cool things. Um, and then later, Sarah Steen from the King County Historic Preservation Program is going to join us to talk about a recently landmarked pet cemetery. Um, I noticed that a few weeks ago and put that on my list of things to talk about and checked in with Sarah, and we'll hear all the details uh, later on in the show. But first, uh, it's uh, history. History is happening all over, all over the place, all over the time, all over the time. Um, and yesterday was the last day of the Highland Ice Arena. Uh, that's up in the Shoreline area. Been in business for many, many years. And so we sent our live correspondent, Ken Zick, to go check things out. And I think let's see if Ken's there on the phone right now. Mm-hmm. Ken, can you hear me? I can hear you. Ah, terrific. Thanks for being out there in the field. Now, um, I understand yesterday was the last day for Highland Ice Arena, and you were and went and checked things out. What was it? What were the What was the mood like? Uh, so, so it was uh, it got pretty bittersweet. There were a lot of there were a lot of people there, and the staff said that they had so many folks wanting to come for a last uh, session on the ice that they had to take reservations, and you couldn't skate if you didn't have a reservation. Um, and I saw, you know, families. I saw mixed groups of. Uh, <laughs> levels of skill folks kind of hanging onto the edge going around the edge and i saw a couple of really actually very good figure skaters you know throwing some throwing some spins and loops and things like that it was it was, it was a pretty joyous uh joyous occasion let's hear a little bit of that sound that you collected yesterday i think this is the uh the historic zamboni let's see what this sounds like on the radio right. <laughs> wow i can i feel like i'm right there <laughs> Should we listen to this entire 45-minute recording that you created of the yeah. Zamboni? Yeah, I, I, love it. I love a good Zamboni, uh, Zamboni track. I'll, I'll pot that way down. It'll be in the background there. Um, nice. So, um, so it, it was, did you talk to anybody about, the, uh, about why it was closing or how people were feeling about it closing there? I mean, it seems like it's another instance of a giant piece of real estate that doesn't work as the business that's worked for many, many decades. Yeah, well, there's a, there was a good, um, a really good article, which I'll, I, I'll actually send you a link to, which talked about the history. I mean, it's, it's a similar story, right? It's been a family-run business for years. As the family gets older, the next generation is, is doing other stuff, and, you know, the land becomes more valuable than the business. And so I looked at the, uh, the uh, proposed land use action uh, billboard out in front. They're going to put two uh, seven-story residential buildings here, like 380-some uh, units. Um, as a replacement for the for the ice arena, so it's going to be you know a totally different different space when those are put in. And it's kind of a shame because I know there's this new facility that the Kraken have built over at Northgate, 
and it seems mm-hmm. like that's sort of taking up all the other business. But it, the idea was that if hockey really caught on around here, you'd need more skating rinks and things. So, I mean, it's a private business. It's it's theirs to do with what they want. But um, so now you're actually there live tonight, right? On the on the scene, like 24 hours later. What what's the mood like there now? <laughs> it's, it's pretty quiet. Actually, actually, the understatement of the day. There was a there, there were a couple of really nice though. There's a uh, you know celebrating 56 years banner. You could see through the window of the lobby, and there was a nice uh, handwritten sign thanking the Highland Ice Arena for you know a wonderful wonderful experience and all the you know thanking all the patrons there in the in the door. Um, and then I you know walked around the other side, and the yeah, ice is empty. The building still lit up, and I actually I actually caught a glimpse of uh, that. <laughs> That Zamboni driver out there sweeping a little bit of ice off before pulling down the uh, the utility door. Did it sound? Did it sound like this? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, now the um, the the smoke levels had nothing to do with this closing. There's nothing. There's nothing about the climate. There's nothing other than just a business decision about this thing changing yeah. right now. Were you able to pry any really cool souvenirs off of anything, or signs, or get anything, sneak away with anything last night, or no. not that kind of event? No, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't like that. And when I and I when I talked to I talked to a couple of the folks, a couple of the staff, and they said the building's actually going to be open for the next. There's like 60 more days before the building has to um, uh, has to be handed over. And so they're actually going to spend the next two months dismantling. Um, and they've they found buyers for some of the some of the gear, and they're going to take some of it away. I guess the owners are going to open up a, a skate shop and uh, a sales and maintenance shop in a location to be uh, disclosed later. With a, with a lot of the material that's there in the in the skate shop and, and such. All right. Now, one of the other pieces of sound you got last night, I think, was the open skate. And this is, I mean, this is, it's not a Zamboni. I don't want to let people down, yeah. but I think this is the sound of people skating and enjoying themselves. Let's let's see what this sounds like. Sounds a lot like the Zamboni to me. <laughs> but there's music. I think that's music. Yeah, it, it, so it, it was great because I mean, um, it felt like a, it felt like a flashback to sort of like another era because there was you know there were skaters, but it was pretty actually quiet in the hall, and there's you know no lights or no booming you know sound system. There's just this very faint, faint. Uh, <laughs> I think they were playing Caravan in the background, and so it, it, you know just you could barely just hear the music, and it was it was really just about the people people sort of sharing memories and, and enjoying the ice. All right. I hope you're developing a reputation where if you show up at a local business, people think, oh, no, what's what's this must be the last night of this of this bowling alley or this ice skating rink or this movie theater or whatever it is. So I really appreciate you being out there in the field, being the roving correspondent for Cascade of History. Ken Zick, thank you for going there yesterday. And we got wonderful photos that you took at our there's our Facebook page, Cascade of History. I think there's some that might have been tweeted out as well from our Cascade History uh, Twitter feed. But uh, really appreciate you being out there, and let's um, let's have you on again when something else bad like this happens. You can go check it out for us. <laughs> the, end, the end of another era. Right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Happy, happy to anytime. Thanks, Ken. Have a good night. How you too? That's Ken Zick. He's our roving correspondent for Cascade of History out there in the field, and we will have him back. I guarantee, just the way things are changing, and you know, it's a private business. Like I said, I, I think you know it's up to them to do with what they want. It's just a shame that it has to go away because I've I've skated there many times over the years. Um, Probably not since the pandemic, I don't think, but I can't remember exactly. Um, let's introduce our guests. Really nice of you guys to join us coming all in. First of all, I'm sitting through all the opening stuff and just quietly. <laughs> um, I've got Sean Murphy's here. Sean? Yep, th- I'm you, right here. And you drove up from? Centralia. Centralia. That's, that's, I think you win the distance award. And Lee Corbin, you drove up from? 
I'm down at the uh, Graham area. Okay. Yeah. Now I've known you guys separately. I think I, I did. I introduce you guys to each other. Yes. yes. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. I, I I like. I take a lot of pride in that. Um, because Sean, the reason I met you was because um, when I was working on a story about the memorial wall at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, yep. 1947, I put the call out for people who might be related to somebody on that wall. And your uncle Pat is on the wall. I believe that's right? correct. Yeah, Pat Murphy. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Wow. He was a Roosevelt High School student. Wow. See, that's, that's, that, I mean, it's such a, I mean, the guy gave the ultimate sacrifice. I'm glad his name's on that wall. That's, that wall is a whole other story. We'll have to have you guys back for it to talk about that maybe closer to Veterans Day or Memorial Day. Um, but Lee, I'm trying, I think you sent me a link to the first story that Rachel Bell produced for right. Cairo about 10, nine, 10 years ago about, about the GAR, about the Grand GAR Army of the Republic Cemetery. Cemetery. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a summer day or a dusty day up there on Capitol Hill. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But, I, but then the, maybe six months later, I was working on some story about the, what's the big airship that was in the oh, area? Oh, the Shenandoah. The Shenandoah. And they yes. talked to somebody. Yeah. Well, there's this guy, Lee Corbin. I think, God, that guy keeps showing up like a bad penny. <laughs> yeah. But then you and I, we've been working on all kinds of stuff. You've done yeah. this incredible resource for all sorts of research around these military plane crashes and other stuff in the area. So then yeah. the reason I introduced you guys was because who was working on the SNJ, the, the flight that originated here at Sandpoint in 1949? Who was working on that first? Was that you, well, Sean, or that, you? Okay, the reason you introduced us yeah. is when you and I were talking about the Memorial Wall, you asked me what else I was interested in. I told you about the behavior of the tugboat, and I said I'm working on trying to find somebody to help with the SNJ project that I'd like to get involved in, that I've done some research and knowledge from back in the 60s yeah, growing yeah. up. Okay. And you said, I got the guy that's you should <laughs> talk to. <laughs> that's right. And that's how you introduced us, basically that's off of that conversation. And I don't think we've talked about that particular incident on this show before, but it's so directly tied into the history of where we are tonight. San, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station or Naval Air Station Seattle. I know it had very different names. But people, sure. before it became Magazine Park, in my generation, people just called it Sandpoint. Sandpoint. So which one of you wants to describe that SNJ, what it was, when it left, and why it became a thing that each of you worked on for years? Uh, well, the, uh, the S, it was an SNJ-5, which was a, a typical trainer-type aircraft, uh, tandem seating, two people, uh, that the Navy was using back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, it was a somewhat advanced trainer because it had retractable landing gear and things like that. And uh, they uh, departed on uh, March the 11th, 1949, with the intention of just going out. And it was supposed to be a familiarization flight. Okay. And uh, they took off about 10.05 in the morning. Uh, I think it was a Friday morning, as I remember. And this is two guys, right? Uh, two guys, yeah. uh, Ben uh, Ben Vreeland and uh, Gaston Mays. Um, and Ben Vreeland was a World War II vet. Yes, yeah, he had, he had served through the war. Um, Gaston had actually enlisted in time. He could have been in the war, but the uh, the Navy said, no, we want you to finish your one fr your freshman year at the University of Tennessee, okay. and then we'll then we'll take you in. And then, okay. of course, by then the war was uh, winding down, so uh, he didn't actually get to see any action. Um, and Ben, as a matter of fact, was primarily a train an instructor pilot during the, his wartime experience. The last six months of the war, they shipped him out to Honolulu, and a transport squadron, and he was flying out there, and then the war ended. Okay. But uh, the aircraft took off at uh, 10.05 in the morning, headed east towards the Cascade. They made one radio call, to, and uh, and that was it. They they basically disappeared. 
And we've had evidence over the years that uh, uh, various people heard airplanes, the loggers that were up there working, uh, you know, it was an airplane having engine trouble. And um, they, uh, it was the, t the area that they went out to, we've determined was pretty much just nothing but trees, basically. So they had a choice when they started having engine problems that they could either put it into the trees or there was a nice lake there that they could uh, go ahead and land on, which would probably be a lot better to getting wet than going into the trees. Yeah. And, and that's why we were just about 99% sure that it went into Black Lake. And, you know, it seems like aircraft in those days were disappearing all the time. There wasn't the sophisticated technology in terms right. of tracking or transponders or that sort of stuff. Right. But the reason that this flight was more than just a couple of little newspaper articles in 1949 about a search starting and a search ending is because of one particular woman and what she right. did every year for something like 19 years 19 or 20 years. years. 19 yeah. years. Now, tell yeah. me, tell me who, who wants to tell that part of the story? Well, uh, you know, growing up here, I do remember the story, you know, vividly. Uh, as Lee has done a great deal of finding the stories in the newspaper yeah. articles. But I, I remember her coming up. I remember the stories. Uh, we used to hunt up in North Bend area. Mm -hmm. And I remember even people talking about the crash back then. And so it was something that resonated with me personally from that standpoint growing up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she would come every year, and she would. She had friends that she made all over. I mean, from North Bend, Snoqualmie, down into Kirkland and Bellevue. Uh, she made friends with police officers because the East Side uh, uh, Frogman's uh, Rescue Unit Number One wasn't that <laughs> it's called? Yeah, and she had you know friends there that were parts of the. Uh, uh, the search. And she's the mother of which of the two pilots? Uh, Gaston Mays. And Ensign Gaston Mays. And, and what was her name? Uh, uh, Nora. Nora, Nora Mays. Mays. Thank right. you. And I've uh, seen a lot of the photographs from the stuff that Lee pulled yeah. out of the archives and stuff. She, she seems like this sort of, and she's from Tennessee or someplace? Yeah. Uh, yes. And so she, at personal expense, I assume nobody was footing the bill, they came up every year. She, sometimes her husband or other kids and stuff, and they would camp out for the summer or set up, set up in somebody's home or somewhere or a motel for the summer and kind of needle people and kind of make sure the search wasn't given up. 19 yeah. years is a long time to search for a yeah. plane. Now, um, I know a couple of years ago, there was a monument dedicated at Black Lake. I was there with you guys. I was wonder happy to be part of that. It was an amazing event with one of the family members was there. Right. And I think the head of the Washington State um, the military reserve. I, mean, I can't remember what her name was. Oh, the but, VA. Yeah, lots yeah, ton, yeah. tons she's, of people. Yeah, she's yeah, the director was, uh, of the Washington State Veterans Administration. Yeah. And that gorgeous, Alfie Rommel. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, and that gorgeous yeah. monument on the edge of that kind of nondescript little lake in the middle of down this really, we, I think we drove about 18 miles down this logging. We got permission yeah. from the logging it's company to be ways. there and everything. Yeah, yeah and um, it's amazing how that turned out. But um, how, how early in that 19 years did uh, Nora Mays have some idea that the plane was likely in well, Black first Lake. of all, the last person known to have seen the plane was a man named Riley, last name okay. Riley. He was the one that claimed to have seen it with a dead engine. Just before him, a guy named Johnson saw the airplane, and he said the engine was barking, and he was close enough to actually read the numbers. But Riley is the one that called the troopers. Now, if I may say, for years they just anticipated that the plane didn't make it to a lake and went in the trees. So yeah. for years, it was always thought to be in the trees. And 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 Lee, and, and I, I do want to make this a mention, 
David Mays sent to Lee everything the Mays family had in his uh, collection. And in that collection is a lot of this evidence that we found th through going through it. And tragically, David Mays just passed away oh, last, sorry to, yeah, last month. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and so David was an immense help, I think. Uh, yeah. And so... Because I imagine in the, in the since uh, since his mother passed away, I think in the eighties or something, not much had been done in yeah. terms of trying to. You guys really, you guys really reignited the search, and I think the cool thing was you were able to convince the Naval History and Heritage Command. If I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. yeah. To to officially designate the final resting place of that SNJ trainer, that little yeah. aircraft with those right. two guys, as Black Lake, which allowed for that monument to be installed. So. Now there is more to the story on that. There's a smaller <laughs> there's a smaller <laughs> monument at the American Legion Hall in Snoqualmie, the town nice. of Snoqualmie. Okay. It, it should be noted that they're the ones that helped raise the money for these mm. memorials. And now Lee should step up at the moment and explain what's going on with Tahoma National Cemetery on that. Oh, you know? well, uh, the National Cemetery Administration will, um, they have a thing called a group monument where if, uh, if a group of people have passed away, military people have passed mm -hmm. away in a military operation, you can get all their names placed on one monument. Oh, wow, okay. And so I went ahead just to see what would happen, and because I don't think Tahoma had ever had the opportunity to do this before, yeah. but uh, I put in a request for a marker that would say, in memory of, because the fact that there's no recovery of the bodies, but it says, it'll say in memory of it, and it'll say Ben Reeland and Gaston Mays, and it should have the date that they they passed away. So I'm not quite sure what the design's going to look like. Huh? That's that's so, great. I mean, it's. Yeah. I know that the. I mean, the there was some evidence, some artifacts, some bits and pieces that they connected to the plane that were right. found early on, and right. some evidence and thing, but no plane, no human remains ever identified. But no. still. It's a real, I think it's a great achievement of you guys to get that thing, you know, designated by the Navy as the final resting place. Um, the evidence that was found yeah. left, no, uh, <laughs> it left no question as to the plane being in there. Uh, I mean, it just yeah. didn't. Uh, there's too many things that there's listed. And the Navy, in a letter from 1963, the commander here talked to the commander in 61 who admitted that they had received items from the lake and was of the agreement that they felt the plane had disintegrated and there was no point in doing any anything yeah. more. Yeah. But it kind of just went away and nothing else was done yeah. about it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's plenty of things you could spend your time doing, whether it's like, you know, playing golf or watching TV or going to the Mariners game like you did yesterday, Sean. 18 uh. innings worth, 12-hour <laughs> <12 -hour> day. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, may they rest in, uh, well, I guess, what, 17 weeks till spring training, someone's right. saying. Um, going off topic, though. But um, so there's plenty of things that, you know, a, a healthy, red-blooded American could spend his or her time doing uh, these days. Why spend so much time on that Black Lake project? And, you know, why, I mean, why go to all that trouble to get all that stuff to happen? What's, I mean, why? Tell me why. Why is it important? Okay, I guess I'll go first on this. I know, number one, the the what it did to those families and i'm i'm talking about the the issues within the mays family the issues within the vreeland family the effects on the family yeah you know when you think about lost airmen or lost uh, sailors or whatever we just say oh yeah they're lost yeah 
but we don't look at the effects that it's had. And when they've not been found, the effects are even greater because did they die suddenly? Did they die here? Did they die there? What ha- actually happened? And I look at it from a personal standpoint. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, Sean and I are both uh, veterans, and I think there's just this connection that you don't want to see another veteran uh, just kind of forgotten about, basically. Yeah, and certainly from yeah. the, re- the reaction of the family that day and then the subsequent time we went back for another visit. Right was just like, I mean, I, I totally get it. It makes yes. perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to me. So yeah. um, in case you're just joining us, it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. We're the only live radio program all about Pacific Northwest history in the free world. Um, we're on every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Pacific time. Um, we're 101.1 FM. That's uh, Space 101.1 FM here from Sandpoint Naval Air Station. Now Nowadays better known as Magnuson Park. Also streaming at space101fm.org. We're also available as a podcast, and um, we're now on Spotify. We're, we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, also at SoundCloud if you want to go that route, too. So, But do listen live. I think a live radio show is much better than a podcast. I, I'm biased, though. Um, so our guests are Sean Murphy and Lee Corbin. They're military vets. They're aviation historians, military historians, um, and they they have a lot of shared interests, uh, a lot of stuff that I like, too. And um, Sean, um, you're a bit of a railroad historian. I mean, you're we're all I – mean, we're all railroad historians <laughs> at heart, of course. And your dad was a railroad guy and was involved in a fairly, what, infamous, famous, notorious, what would you, how would you describe the thing that he was involved in back in 1948? 48, February 18th. February 18th. What, what happened on February 18th? Well, he became a submariner. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they called anybody that goes in a drink, you know, with a, with a locomotive. Oh, that's uh, like a, they, in the industry they call them that? Uh, yeah, they <laughs> referred to them as <laughs> that's, submariners. That's anyway, uh, yeah. Um, he was acting as a fireman on the um, the locomotive that was number 2507 pulling the fast mail train. Uh, he was an engineer. He was in the engineer pool, but okay. he was running as a fireman on that. Okay. Uh, he was a 41 hire, 1941. Okay. The gentleman he was with, Al White, was a 1908 or 1906 <laughs> hire. And uh, they hit a landslide south of Mucotillo, and they... Uh, Went on in the water. And so this is the same stretch of tracks. If you ride the Amtrak up to Vancouver or whatever, this, or you'd go the same stretch of tracks. Oh, yeah. Okay. And why that they had no forewarning? They didn't. They didn't. No. The light. Yeah. The little. The little. What was it like a um, carbide lamp on the front of the locomotive <laughs> didn't light up the mud. No, you just well when they do when they're highballing okay. it through that neighborhood. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, they just you hit the brakes, but uh, the brakes don't help you too much when you slide into it and flop into the bay. Was he injured or? Yeah, he w- he became a disabled engineer, according to his fellow engineers. He had part of his thumb cut off, so Ooh, he was unable geez. to put both thumbs up. You know, so you know, <laughs> you put both thumbs up to end the day or go to beans, as they called it, go to eat, and uh, he was unable to put two thumbs up. So he was a disabled engineer. Did did he yeah. have as good a sense of humor about this as you apparently have? Or is oh yeah, okay. oh yeah, you got to have a sense of humor about these kind of things. He used to mess with kids. He would take his stub and you know or he would tell him oh you know a little kid would be in the water and he said oh get out of there that fish might bite it off look what it did to me you know <laughs> something like that and so so that wreck i mean I'm, i've seen photos of that wreck you've showed them to me i think but yeah. i've seen even before i met you i think i've seen old seattle post intelligence or pictures at mohai in the archives of that wreck um wh- how how many th- how many cars went in the in the water was it 
Did if I remember correctly, it was the locomotive, the tender, and one car. Okay. So yeah. they cleaned that up pretty quickly. They didn't shut down the line for like multiple days, right? They oh, get in there well, they just... got it back. I think it took two days. Okay. Did he get a nice little vacation or a break or that? Or No, you <laughs> just, you know, he had his little time off for injury, you know. But, Stitched uh, his thumb up and put him back on <laughs> the, <in> the <laughs> Yeah, he had to get it. So I don't remember actually how okay. long he was off. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that locomotive is, you know, it been kind of an historical thing. Um down now at Wishram, but it was below Mary Hill Museum for many years. Oh yeah, and then okay. it went then it went over to Pasco to ostensibly put it back in service. It was too expensive, and then it went to where it now rests. Back in service on some kind of a historic thing, not like a no pulling the fast mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the twenty five oh seven four eight two Baldwin P two class nineteen twenty seven four eight two four eight two for and. You know, I can never remember what that means. I have to look that up each time. Okay. What does 482 okay, mean? Okay, you for start with the front and you work to the back. Okay. So the two smaller wheels in the front, okay. multiply it, it's four. Four total, not four on one side? No. Like two and total. two? <laughs> two and two. And then you take uh, eight, you've got the four drivers, four on the other side, and then you had two under, one got set it. of, you know, under the cab. So. So when it was pulled out of the water by Michael Teal, it was just they took it to the shop somewhere and patched it up, and it went back in service for another, what, yeah, 10 it years? Yeah, it went over to the SPNS, Spokane, Portland, oh. and Seattle, which was a subsidiary of, okay. the, of the Great Northern. And, in fact, that was a story in of itself because a guy down there at Wishroom came out and said, yeah, it's mismarked, it's in the Great Northern, it should be SPNS. And I oh. said, you want to hear the real story? Okay. Oh, so and so, yeah, because yeah, there's a sign that says it came over from the SPNS. Okay. And so they thought it should have never been in Great Northern College. <laughs> so I had to had to set them straight. I like that people debate those kinds of things. That's that's half the fun of being interested in that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we, one of the guests, I think, on this program about a month ago, we had um, Gus Malonis, who's an old yeah. BNSF guy. He started on the railroad, you know, working as a, I don't know, a, a hot dogger. Oh, there's always some goofy name I don't know about, like the like Gandy Dancer. Gandy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's probably no hot doggers on the railroad. I'm making that part up. But he, he's, his family lived in Wishram uh, 60 years ago, and mm-hmm. they used to like, go to the beanery and stuff there. And, but he knows about that locomotive. And they, always, they always talk about the roof on that locomotive, the protective shed being a little too short. It doesn't it let you fully appreciate the glory yeah. of the, yeah, it's way too of the low. 482 yeah. or the 284 or whatever it is. 482. 482. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so now um, what projects are you guys working on next? Because uh, I know that you know, I got you involved in this long-term project with this Flight 293, this, right. this uh, military transport from 1963. I don't want to go into that tonight. We'll save that for another occasion. But Well, you also introduced us to Cliff Sholin from Minnesota, and that's the missing B-52 bomber. Oh, okay. That, uh, trying to get a renewed search for that off of Matagordo Island, Texas. Okay. And it went down on February 28, 1968, with eight men. Normally it would be a six-man crew, but they were being scored on oh. their practice bomb runs. Okay. And so it's eight men. And, uh, you know, like most military searches, you're looking at at most 10 days, sometimes no more than six or eight, and it's never been searched for again, so. And it's not armed with any nuclear weapons, right? No, no. In fact, it wasn't armed with any bombs. It, you know, it was just a practice, and they would, you know, time and say when they let loose and where they let loose. And I know, Lee, um, you and I recently got together with Elisa, is it Law? Who's Law. The, the director yes. of Friends of Magnuson Park. Right. And sh- I interviewed her for a, the other radio station talking about the um, 
around the world flight. Right. I know you're doing some work around identifying some of the materials that were here at some point at Sandpoint or at, in the earliest days of right. aviation. Because this, right. it really is the cradle of aviation around the Northwest. I mean, this is like yeah. where it all really begins. So much stuff right. happens here. And you were looking for evidence of a hangar and a pier, or a hangar, I think is what you were tracking down recently. Well, the uh, what caught my attention just a couple of days ago was uh, when they opened up the field mm -hmm. in uh, 1921, uh, the Army immediately said, hey, let's send some airplanes up here to be permanently based, but we're going to need a hangar to do so. So they shipped up a hangar that had been down in California, and they brought it up here, and uh, it was constructed by uh, about March of 1923. So that hangar was in existence until um, – there's a whole bunch of things happening. So Boeing, <laughs> Boeing Field. All your stories are like this, Lee. You Boeing know that, right? Field, <laughs> <laughs> Boeing Field opened up in 1928. In 19, about 1930, they started saying, hey, let's move the Army from Sandpoint down to Boeing Field. That took place in 1931. So around the same time, they also opened up a um, at Fort Townsend. Not Port Townsend, but Fort Townsend. Yeah, yeah. They opened up an Army airfield over there, just a small, basically, emergency airfield. Huh. And they opened it up on what had been the uh, where they used to farm for the fort, <laughs> but they didn't need a farm anymore. <laughs> so they opened up an airfield, and they needed a hangar. So they shipped, because the Navy was starting to build oh. hangars now on Sand Point, and they were moving down to Boeing Field, they said, let's ship this hangar over to the Fort Townsend airfield yeah and so they shipped it over there and and go ahead and went ahead and constructed it and uh, i started looking at newspaper clippings and things like that and i started to realize that hangar might still be there <laughs> and i i checked with the uh it's now the jefferson county airport i checked with one of the administrative people there and they said yeah it's still here Oh, and, wow. and it 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 belongs to there's a, a fixed base operator there called uh, Tailspin Tommies apparently <laughs> are using this this, this uh, hangar. <laughs> well, what's significant about this hangar is the fact that first of all, in all likelihood, the World Cruisers probably utilized it at some point during their short three week stay here before they left. That's great. I'm sure in the in the springtime. You know, it would be raining, and they, yeah. they were trying to do work on it. But then more significantly is in uh, August of 1927, when Charles Lindbergh was flying around the country giving talks about aviation and things like that, there's actually a video. He landed at Sandpoint, and there's a video of them pushing the Spirit of St. Louis into this hangar. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so this hangar that's sitting over in, at, in Jefferson County Airport is mm. – Apparently that hangar. Now, so. just to clarify, was Jefferson County Airport was that the airstrip they built for Fort Townsend, or was there a different airstrip at Fort Townsend and they moved the no, hangar? No, that again? that was, that yeah, the only airport that uh, that was there is uh, the f the f it was the Fort Townsend one, but now yeah. it's the Jefferson. Okay. When the war ended uh, in 1946, the uh, the war, uh, I think it was like the War Assets Administration was was basically turning airports over to yeah. local governments. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with this one. And so uh, Port Townsend picked it up. 
Oh, so it's their cool. airport, even though it's called Jefferson County Airport. Got it. Okay, yeah. but that's that field of so. days. You said 1927 or, um, or something? They built it about 1931. Now, yeah. um, so uh, back to something you said earlier about the moving the Army aircraft down to Boeing Field. Right. So for from 1921, when this becomes the official when, naval or, or a military airfield, right. the Navy is here and the Army are and here And the Army is here, yeah. Yeah, and it was just a joint operation field, kind of like JBLM. Wow, really, when you think about it. And who who so. would you say had more aircraft in twenty one? Was it more of a navy thing or an army thing in nineteen twenty one? In twenty one, the the army had had uh, a whole bunch of airplanes up here because they were also util- utilizing them for the ROTC at the University of Washington. Okay, because they were training ROTC guys. The Navy would come in here for a few weeks if there was maneuvers going on out out in the ocean. And then they'd be here and then they'd leave, basically. Um, And then it wasn't until uh, later in the 20s, um, or maybe mid-20s, that the Navy started to have more of a permanent presence here. Huh. It's, so, it's, it's amazing yeah. because, you know, obviously, you know, if anyone, if you've lived here any long enough, you don't, I don't remember when there was actually planes taking off here, but I remember no. when this was still obviously a big Navy no, base. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, the, if you drive around here now or walk around here now, there's big hangars, yeah. but there's not much that tells you the story or that gives you any clue as to how extensive right. the operation was here when it shut down 50 right. years ago or how, like, elemental it is and like the literally it's a cradle of aviation i mean boeing did their first assembly in right. fields out here to deliver yeah. aircraft to yeah. the military yeah. i mean this is like it's like you know it's the boeing was born here in a way i mean yeah. it's even more so than the, the red barn in some ways right um and i know you're doing a little bit of work with the friends of magnuson park as they're get ready for the centennial of this around the world flight right and we'll we'll devote a full episode to the around the world flight at some point and we just i think it's in what it's in 20 24 24 so it's coming up in less than two yeah. years right yeah um but it seems like there's great opportunities for interpretation and, mm-hmm. and doing something here to, I don't know, just to tell the aviation history story. I just, yeah. you know, it's interesting, real quick. I think people that are not from here don't honestly know how involved the Navy was in the city of Seattle. Yeah. From Pier 91 to uh, Lake Union, where Mohai is. Yeah, the old uh, Naval Reserve, Reserve Army. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. then here, and yes, I do remember planes taking off. Yeah. One of our friends who's 90 years old used to take me, you know, take us to dinner out here. And then uh, I was out here when planes took that's off. That's pretty so, cool. I know yeah. there's still some people, I, maybe, maybe there aren't any people left. I know there was a, a clamor 50 years ago to not totally dismantle the airfield part and to make it a civilian mm-hmm. airfield right. to be just one more place for civilian yeah. planes to take on and off of that obviously that didn't no. that wasn't successful and the park it's a beautiful park and it's you know I think they've, they've done a lot of great stuff with it but i think there's a lot of uh, opportunity for uh interpreting the history and telling that story especially with the centennial coming up so um my guests are lee corbin and sean murphy we're talking military history aviation history uh railroads um, what else have we been talking about um we talk about your tugboat story no, we haven't tonight. Can we, can, can we talk a little bit <laughs> sure, about it? Okay. Sure. Let me um, let's uh, let's tell me the tugboat story. Yeah. What's well, that's because you well, and I talked about that a couple of years ago. But okay. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. My great uncle by marriage and his five younger brothers started a tugboat company in 1918 out of Anacortes yeah. called Gilkey Brothers Towing, and um, I actually have uh, three books. There's uh, volume one, two, and three. Clarence Bagley did on the city of Seattle. Oh, that's, yeah, it's a great set. In yep. the book. It talks about, under Moran Brothers Shipyard, Robert Moran, the uniquely built tugs. There was two of them. They were called Weda and Beeda. 
using the macabre pronunciation for the names. Okay. And in 1926, they owned the Bajeda, and it went down off of Guaymas Island in about 247 feet of water. Okay. It was always thought that a boiler exploded and killed them all and everything. Yeah. And it was never really discovered as to the cause. And here, uh, a gentleman named Pete Hunt, very well-known guy in the Northwest for flying and diving and stuff. He took his boat out with uh, some and found the tug for me. It's about, I guess, a quarter mile north of Huckleberry and Saddlebag Islands. I was still living in Arizona in retirement. Okay. And three guys went down on the tug, 19, I mean, 2016. Yeah. And then we moved back up. That was in April, which was poor visibilities. And the guys that you met up at Black Lake, they dove it in 17 and 18 Okay. in September. And the last dive pretty much proved probably that the tug was taken down by a collision. Huh. And, peop and people say, why wouldn't the other boat have stopped? Well, it's the heart of prohibition. They were probably hauling alcohol and tugs hauled alcohol. Wow. Fishing boats hauled alcohol. They it's this tug was built with steel plates and, and all hands lost though all nine were lost only wow. one body was ever found and uh and he was on samish island he was the youngest of the crew 18 his brother was the captain i've got photos of the captain on the wow. standing on the winch and uh so we've done quite a bit of work on that and that's what's the uh what's the next step for that project is there is there a logical you know product or really uh most of the divers that did it, some of them have quit doing tech diving. Yeah. And it's really a tech dive, yeah. the depths of it. And so there may not be another dive. Um, you know, we've been able to accomplish a lot. We've given some family members uh, some information. And there's one gentleman pushing me to do a, a long story or maybe even a short book on it. Mm -hmm. I haven't done it yet. And so we'll see. There's so many stories. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, let's take a little break here. It's uh, we, We've been um, listening to the episodes from this Olympia beer promotional thing from 1946, celebrating okay. their 50th anniversary. Um, it's super Razoo Hollywood production levels. I'm William Conrad's a narrator. It's got music. It's very theatrical. It's about three minutes long. I, I, I've told people, when I played the first one a couple weeks ago, I thought, okay, let's we'll play all eight in a row. So this is episode three of The End of the Oregon Trail. And you're listening to Cascade History on Space 101.1 FM. before them and it was a beautiful sight to see and the magnificence of the country got to them and suddenly they felt it and quite as suddenly the great pine trees became the welcomed sentinels of home and the dust of the trail became the rich loam of promise and the sound of the wagon wheels became the prophetic birth cry of the generations to come and there it stretched before them the land of the great Northwest, reached at last by the calluses of sunburned hands and the aches of weary backs and the vision of courageous hearts. And they looked, and as they looked, they were grateful for that courage which had seen them through, that which they had prayed for and received. <laughs> 
What was it Daniel Webster had said? What was it now? Yes, yes. And so, gentlemen, and so I repeat, what can we do with the western coast? I got a feeling awful good. I got a feeling goes right through you. Hallelujah. It was a long road from Independence to Omaha. Omaha to Fort Boise, Fort Boise to Fort Walla Walla, Fort Walla Walla to the Columbia River. But the Oregon Trail had ruts in it now, made by wagon wheels and the sweat of men. And it was a time for feeling good. <laughs> hey, Sam, Sam Crockett. Uh, what is it, Colonel? Now we've reached the Columbia River, I reckon you won yourself a bet. What do you mean, Colonel? Why, that hickory shirt you bet with that hardware man back at Independence. Oh, I see. You're right. I won that bet. I sure enough did. Now all you've got to do is go back to Independence to collect. <laughs> oh, holy smoke. I never thought of that. <laughs> Colonel Simmons and his party wintered in the vicinity of Portland. But having explored the Puget Sound country early in the year... Colonel Simmons urged the home seekers to go with him to the extreme southern end of Puget Sound, near the falls that roared out of the Tumwater Deschutes River and into Puget Sound. Tumchuck, the Indians called it, falling water. And on that memorable August day, 1845, when the Simmons party reached the end of the Oregon Trail and first heard the rush of the falls, they heard the power throb of a new civilization. There's gonna be something new. There's gonna be something new. A born in, a born in. Well, to find out what happens, you'll have to tune in next week for episode four of The End of the Oregon Trail, uh, brought to you by the people of the Olympia Brewery back in 1946. Um, while we were listening to that, Lee Corbin, who's one of the guests tonight, pointed out that uh, William Conrad, who I always associate with Gunsmoke, went on to bigger and better things when he uh, narrated the um, Rocky and Bullwinkle show for Jay Ward Productions back about circa 1958, 59. All right, it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. We're live from Magnuson Park, historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station on the shores of Lake Washington. We're the only live history show about Pacific Northwest history. Now, that didn't come out right, but you know what I mean. Um, we're here till 9 o'clock. Um, joining us now on the phone is Sarah Steen. She's the Landmarks Coordinator for the King County Historic Preservation Program. Sarah, can you hear me? I can, Felix. Ah, wonderful. You're Good on. Evening. Yeah, you're live on Cascade of History from Space 101.1 FM and streaming at space101fm.org. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. I, I saw a note about this um, pet cemetery uh, being achieving landmark status, and I thought, I want to find out more about it. So I reached out to you guys. And what, where is the, first of all, where is the pet cemetery located? Uh, it's on the west slope of the Green River Valley between Kent and Des Moines, a little bit East of I-5 and a little south of 516. And is this someplace that's open to the public during regular hours? Can people visit this place? Yes, they do. Okay. They typically do. And um, I know we have a group of patrons who visit pretty regularly, so there's people out there often. And, 
And it's been around, been around long enough and is significant enough to, it's actually an official King County landmark now. It is. It, it, it achieved designation at our, uh, I believe it was a September meeting. And so it's pretty recent. Where, how did it come to be? What's, what's the story of, of, the, of the, being a pet cemetery that's old enough to be a landmark? <laughs> well, it started in 1951. So wow. it's, uh, it's actually the oldest pet cemetery, commercial pet cemetery in Washington that's still active. Wow. There's about seven of them across the state, and this is the oldest, and of course the oldest in King County. I had no idea. Um, yeah, many people don't. Uh, many people don't know the history of... Actually, we actually didn't know the history of pet cemeteries before this came across the desk, so we were really excited to learn about it. And um, Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and so the, the, are the, the families, was it started by a family, or how? I mean, what makes a person in 1951 decide to do a pet burial, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, um... So pet cemeteries have actually been around since the end of the 19th century. So 1896, the Hartsdale Pet Cemetery started in New York. And then you start seeing them pop up in the, you know, the first three decades of the 20th century in all the major cities. It's really an urban movement. Wow. Um, and that's because the, the pets or animals really started shifting in how they related to people and how people related to them. Prior to that, uh, before you see a big movement into cities, you had people that had animals for income or for sustenance, but you didn't have them necessarily for companions. And then as people move into cities, they become family members. They become companion companion animals. They become more important as a as part of the family and a companion than they were as income or sustenance. Oh, so that you start seeing the development of pet cemeteries after that because people want to memorialize them in a different way. Now, um, I've never been to a pet cemetery, but I imagine does this one have like elaborate headstones? I mean, is there sort of the the same range of um, markers that you'd see at a cemetery for people? Will you see at this pet cemetery? Yes, you would. I mean, you, it started out as what's called a memorial park cemetery. So these were the cemeteries in the after World War II that were, these are the big lawn, expanses of lawns with flush markers. Yeah. Um, and that's mostly because people wanted, they were moving around, they weren't staying home, they weren't, you know, five generations of the same family in the cemetery, so they would, it became kind of a professionalized service, and they had flush markers that were easy to mow around, for example, <laughs> since the family members weren't there to take care of them. Yeah. So this really started on, as part of that. So you see the earliest markers tend to be flush. Bronze markers, I think, are some of the oldest ones there. Um, and in the last 25 years, there's been a lot more upright. We've kind of moved back into upright markers and really unique style mm. in this cemetery. Dogs like those, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, it's... I mean, this is a weird question. I didn't. It didn't even occur to me. But are the pets that are buried there? Are they actually? Are they um, embalmed? Or is there like a similar process for pet that there are there are for people? I didn't. I, that question is just now crossing my mind. I would have. I would have prepped I, you for that kind of a question, but I, that just struck me. I don't believe so. <clears throat> I don't know for sure, wow. but I don't believe that they are embalmed. Okay. I think they are just buried, um, um, and many of them are cremated as well. And you can bury yeah, cremated yeah. the same way as a human. I, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, it's a. People people love their pets, and people want to be able to mm-hmm. you know, be able to visit them later on and everything. And pets' lifespans are so short compared to the human lifespan. That's the thing that yeah. I always talk to my friends and family. We always lament the fact that you know you have a, a dog. A dog that lives a good long time is like you know ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen years, right? And that's 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 right? a, that's the exception, you know. But, and you have and so, out there they have some dogs that are like some families that have maybe twenty dogs. I mean, they you know there's wow. long-standing plots where people have have been burying their pets together. Huh. And there's people buried along with their pets out there too. There are cremains of, a few cremains of humans out there that chose to be buried with their pets. Huh. And the so one thing you talked about these upright markers being, you know, uh, sort of back in vogue. Um, are there um, 
are there other other aspects of the history or other sort of trends that you've seen with this place in terms of is this more popular than it was 10 years ago or less than it was 20 years ago is there sort of a because it's again it's it's it strikes me as sort of esoteric or sort of not not totally mainstream and i don't mean that in a pejorative mm-hmm. way it's just something that seems a little specialized yeah i would say so um what i'm hearing informally is that it, that's kind of going down and like it you know a lot of the pet funerary movement follows the human funerary movement and yeah. And humans are changing in how they relate to death and how they relate to their remains of loved ones, and so do pet owners. Um, more, there's a lot more cremations that I've been hearing about, and less ne- burials necessarily. Yeah. Um, but it still does happen. It's still an active pet cemetery. That's great. And it's been there almost for more than 70 years. And what, what were the particular criteria that um, let it pass over or let it be um, made a landmark? Well, we have you know, specific criteria that something has to meet. It has to, in some sense, be representative, whether that's like architectural design or whether that is a historical pattern or event. And this one was nominated for both, for actually for mm. a under A1, which is the, the historical pattern or event, that it's related to humans changing relationships to animals and how they chose to memorialize them. It's a very, you know, unique, as you said, it's kind of a niche, unique cultural aspect of how we live here. Um, yeah. And then it was also A3 for its, its both it's that memorial park design that it's following human funerary movements, but it's also really unique in that those particular markers. You're not going to see the, the kind of specialized markers like rabbits in stone <laughs> or, you know, someone built a little house, kind of a cottage over, you know, you're not going to see that at a human cemetery. So wow. they are very unique in terms of cultural reflection. So there's there's yeah. rabbits there's rabbits there too. I didn't even that didn't even cross my mind. I'm I'm so focused <laughs> on dogs and cats. I didn't even think about the fact that other other animals are are kept as pets. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, um, there's from what I hear, there's birds, rabbits, monkeys, horses, <laughs> hamsters. Wow. Uh, there's a weasel, a lioness, and a goat. A weasel. So kind of, wait, 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 wait. A weasel, a lioness, and a goat. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And what's this place called again? It's called the um, Seattle Tacoma Pet Cemetery. I think it's now known as Seattle Pet Cemetery. Huh. Wow. That's that's amazing. I, you know, I was on the King County Landmarks Commission like 25 years ago, and we um, we landmarked a rotary snowplow, which I thought was pretty cool. And mm-hmm. then I know you guys yeah. with the city of Kent in the last couple of years landmarked the the um, Boeing rovers on the surface of the moon. Yes, we did. And that's now that's this, more honorary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's hard, hard to enforce. Um, yes. But with this pet cemetery too, that's I, I think the King County Landmarks Program has always been really um, progressive and forward-looking in ways to sort of meet people where they are and sort of get stuff that's, you know, that wouldn't necessarily traditionally occur to you right away as being something that could be landmarked. And I think that's great. I think you guys have a really good program. So I really appreciate yeah, you joining you. us tonight here on Cascade of History to give us the lowdown on the Seattle Tacoma Pet Cemetery. I'm gonna I'm gonna find a time to make a visit. That sounds like I want to see that place. So. Um, yes, absolutely. I encourage that. All right. Sarah Steen, she's the Landmarks Coordinator for the King County Historic Preservation Program. Sarah, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Have a good night. Oh, thank you, Felix. Have a good night. You do. Bye. Wow, that's pretty cool. I, I, had, I had no idea that there's so much stuff going on like that at a pet cemetery with the, the um, rabbits and monkeys and goats and a lioness even. So anyway, do you guys have pets? Uh, actually, <laughs> my, my wife has had a box turtle for about 55 years. That's longer than she's had you, I guess, right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the joke is we we had our daughter 
for the sole purpose of taking care of this turtle <laughs> after we're gone. <laughs> well, how like how long will a box turtle potentially You're supposed live? to live to a hundred? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So, oh wow, yeah. that's cool. Um, we got three. Uh, well, it's kids, but they have three horses, a dog, and a cat. Okay. Now, um, you're involved with a museum down in Centralia. Shayless Veterans Memorial Museum. Tell me about that museum. Well, cover virtually every war. And uh, when I say that, there are glass case after glass case after glass case that'll have uniforms, they'll have letters, they'll have photos, they'll have uh, weaponry, uh, including, you know, the Germans, the Japanese. It'll have... uh, uh, different, uh, it'll cover the women, you know, uh, unlike some of the museums that have failed to do that. Yeah. We have a P-51 that hangs from the ceiling. Uh, we have the flag off the Abraham Lincoln that covers the whole wall. There's an F-105 that's Vietnam uh, mm-hmm. vet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of equipment. Um, the duck deck guns, um, oh God, is that off the Concord? Uh, the USS yeah. Concord. Yeah. yeah, they came out of uh, Woodland Park Zoo, and I believe you were involved in helping yeah. to get those down to the museum. Oh, that's right, because the zoo moved those guns. These aren't, this is not, what about the, this doesn't have, you guys don't have the Mohai, the gun from the no. Colorado. No. Where'd that end up? Any idea? I think that's down there. It is. Yeah, it's down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, yeah, I'm just failing to st- say no. everything. No, I mean, that's it's, okay. This is one that I can see from the freeway. When oh, I'm, when right it kind of jogs to the left there. Yeah, and yep. Okay. You right. take the exit for Highway 6, <laughs> and you literally just go west to the first light, take a right, and it'll be about a quarter mile down on the right-hand side. That's and great. It, it's open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 5. <laughs> What's yeah? What's the web address for that place? Seriously, do you remember the web address, by chance? Uh, I really don't. I'll add it to the I, yeah, podcast. Yeah, I really I don't. No, that's okay. Um, so this, I mean, there there are these common elements, and everyone I talk to, like you, you, Sean Murphy, and Lee Corbin, and even Sarah Steen with King County, I've talked to before. This, it's this notion of history being worth spending time talking about, preserving, you know, sharing the stories. But for me, it's all about the stories, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that the the cemetery will be preserved. I'm glad there's a building in Chehalis and all, all those great artifacts. That monument that's out of Black Lake, um, the photographs of the tugboat that's off of Guamus Island, they're sort of, it's a little overwhelming, actually, <laughs> frankly, when I think about it, how much material there is out there. Um, I do have a photo of that tug towing logs through see, the that's locks. Great. That's through great. Through the locks. Now, have you, is there, is there a, have you put together a web page for the tug project? This is all, this is like a folder in your, in your basement or whatever. Uh, okay. It's, it's, that's, it's, I know, it's, that's yeah. Okay. yeah. That's okay. Mm. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but, and the, the similar question I asked about why going to the lengths to create that monument for the family out there. I mean, there's, why is this stuff important to preserve? And maybe this is a dumb question. Why is this stuff important to preserve and to talk about on a Sunday night? To drive as far as you did from Shalis and Lee, from Graham, to get together and talk about Northwest history on, on a show like this. I'll put it real quick. Your family is because of who your family came from. You, today out there in society comes from the history before it. If you don't understand the history before it, it's really hard to understand today. And and so for me, it's threefold. Understanding the history, just interested in that event or events, Mm -hmm. and then the personal things that are involved. In my tugboat, for example, just like we've done with the uh, SNJ, we brought the individuals involved alive again. Yeah. The families of the people that died on the tugboat, I did as much as I could on the nine 
you know, uh, crew members, just like he's done with the SNJ and the fellows that died on that. Lieutenant Junior Grade Benjamin Breland and Ensign yeah. uh, Mays. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's just the personal touch of not only bringing their story alive, but also bringing their family, you know, history alive. Yeah, I, and I'll let you answer. Secondly, I I remember saying, I mean, I worked at Mohai for about seven years, back from the late '90s to about 2006, and. You know, the, art, the artifacts, you know, you walk through the museum. That was the old museum, right, from the 1952 oh. building that was gorgeous when it opened up. And then when the freeway came through, they had to reverse the entrance to the rear. I mean, it was, the feng shui was all messed up. <laughs> um, and, you know, there'd be these exhibits, these photographs on the wall and stuff. But when there was actually somebody in the building who had witnessed some event or was related to somebody who had been some part of some event, it's like it just, it's like it, it just, it was revivified. Like it opened, it was alive again. Like it right. stopped being these two-dimensional photographs or even this big, giant three-dimensional artifact. And it was about the people and the stories. That's that's the part that I, I I'm totally attracted to. But yeah. Leo, you 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 send me research stuff late at night. You send me stuff all the time. You're like the, it's like a it's like a research ticker from a, like an old uh, ticker tape <laughs> thing from the the stock market yeah. or or an old teletype. Yeah. I get these great pictures and cool oh. facts from you constantly. It's oh. and it's it's a great source of stories and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's obviously a passion for you. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I um and I it's it's like what Sean was saying. I uh, I I hate to see. People who have done great things, and maybe even not so great things, but I hate to see them forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Basically. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Just so you know real quick, that F4U that's in the museum that came out of the lake, the FG derivative, you know, at the Museum of Flight. The, is that a Corsair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one I worked on the cleanup. But the other one that we did the cleanup is on the USS Yorktown, if you're ever down in right South on. Carolina. Right on. All right. Well, it's uh, coming to reach the end of another voyage of the Steamship Columbia here on the uh, Cascade of History, live on Space 101.1 FM from historic Magnuson Park, site of Sandpoint Naval Air Station. I want to thank our guests, uh, Ken Zick, who drives us, joined us live from Highland Ice Arena with his wonderful recordings of the Zamboni. And I'm not going to play it again. Don't worry. You can <laughs> rewind the podcast if you want to hear it again. Um, and Sean Murphy and Lee Corbin, who joined me in studio, and Sarah Steen uh, from the King County Landmarks, uh, King County Historic Preservation Program, talking about that wonderful pet cemetery. So um, we'll be back next week at 8 o'clock I don't, uh, on Sunday night. Um, don't have any guests lined up yet, but I've got some ideas. And um, we'll put stuff on social media. Follow us on Facebook. Follow our Twitter feed. Um, share our podcast around. It's Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.